Hello, you're watching Market Call. I'm Dan Nathan, that's MKT Call. Today, I am joined by Liz Young. I call her L-Y from SoFi. <laughs> Guy Adami, who's not here, calls you E-Y from SoFi. That's a little thing with us, isn't it, Liz? Yeah, it is. And you're going to try to get this L-Y thing to, to catch on. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. warning you. No, okay, so, so guys. You made it E-Y, it is what it is. And I'm here, I'm going to use a phrase that I am sure would just tick him off. I'm here on Turnaround Tuesday. Oh, there it is. Because the market was down, looked like it was going to be really bad. And here we are, we're all in the green. I don't know what happened. All right, well, we're going to talk about that because to me, you know, we had those two really violent updates last Monday and Tuesday. And today, you know, we were down, I think the NASDAQ at its lows was down um, about 2%. But to your point, here we are, we're rallying a little bit. I'm seeing more and more green on my screens throughout the day here. But Liz, thank you for stepping in. Midway through the program, we are going to have Derek Salmon. He is the global head of commodities, options, and international markets at CME Group. So he's going to be joining us, talking a little bit about his very long career trading FX options futures. Um, and then now at CME Group, really focused on a lot of those products. And we're going to talk about some of the cross-asset volatility products. Um, so that's going to be a great conversation. So stick around for that. Today's Market Call is brought to you by our sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And of course, our data partners, FactSet, and the production team at Open Exchange. So thanks to those guys. All right, Liz. Let's do this thing. You called it Turnaround Tuesday. You know that guy is cringing somewhere out there. He can kind of catch that vibe a little bit. We started off this morning and the headlines were the IMF warns that the worst is yet to come uh, is steps to slow inflation, raise risk. And you see this and we're starting to see more and more of this. You heard Jamie Dimon in an interview on CNBC in Europe. I think it was yesterday. Talk about how the next one percent higher in Fed funds is going to be very painful. Um, the Fed has used the term pain, um, you know, in the past here to describe what they have to go through to kind of tame inflation here. When you see these sorts of headlines, what does it make you think here? Because obviously investors are kind of shooting first, asking questions later. That's how we get the kind of messy opening that we had today. But I think things are dissipating a little bit as we get through the day. Well, so we're still really sensitive as investors to the headlines. And I would say Jamie Dimon his words carry almost as much weight nowadays as Jerome Powell. So we hang on every word. Uh, I think somebody earlier today on CNBC said, maybe it was Kramer, that they weren't sure he really meant to tell people that the market was going to go down another 20%. I agree. I don't think he meant that it was going to go down another 20%. But for him to say that, you know, things are probably not going to go great over the next six to nine months, I would agree. And I don't mean to minimize these headlines, but of course, the worst is still to come. We're still at over 8% inflation. In order to get that down, we do have to hurt demand. So hurting demand means we hurt GDP growth. We probably hurt earnings. And I made this point earlier today on Squawk Box that we're in a quarter, the third quarter earnings and fourth quarter earnings and full year 2022, where we've got sales growth higher than earnings growth, which means to me, that costs are taking a bite out of company profits. And as inflation comes down, as will revenue growth. So there's less of a buffer moving forward. We're obviously going to see some more slowing in the economy in order to get inflation under control. I think they're right that the worst is still to come. 
Yeah, well, I, I guess the point that I took away from Jamie Dimon's comment is that that next one percent higher in Fed funds, especially as the All Fed right. is obviously you know participating in quantitative tightening at a time where we're seeing other parts of the globe easing, that might be somewhat difficult to kind of um, you know I, I guess stomach. And when you think about the point that I think he was trying to make is that risk assets have more downside risk if things don't go base case scenario for um, what might be just considered a soft landed or a mild recession. And I, the, the comment about the stock market is really interesting because that whole, co- that whole conversation really was about the economy, about inflation, about consumer health. And it was funny, he chose to talk about the stock market. You know, he didn't have to give that sort of forecast. So I think that's kind of interesting. Again, who knows what his track record is. But one thing I do think is interesting is that we've been trying to track investor sentiment. And again, that is a, as a monolith is very interesting. I woke up, I turned on my Twitter machine, I went to at Liz Young Strat and just seeing know if I were if I were to abbreviate Liz Young, it comes out to L-Y, okay? Just to sure. be very clear. It's a true statement, yeah. But it's kind of funny, you know, early this morning, you're saying vibe check. According to AAII survey data, investors have been net bearish for 39 of 40 weeks so far in 2022. That's actually pretty astounding, right? So it's the most yeah. since 1988. When you see that sort of stuff, does it kind of make you scratch your head and say, all right, let's kind of chill a little bit on some of my like negative sort of Nancy kind of vibes here because when we get that off sides, usually we have a surprise coming. Yes. Now I want to acknowledge something. I was reasonably bullish for a portion of this year, summer-ish, late July into August. And then this is what happens. You, You get bullish and you're as a strategist, if you are open to hearing other viewpoints, you listen to them. But I always have a list of what are the thesis busters in my mind, right? So if I'm constructive on the markets, what are the things that would change my mind? And I will tell you this, that September Fed meeting, when we got the summary of economic projections that said unemployment was higher, growth was lower, we were going to be below trend growth until 2024, inflation expectations were up, the dot plot was, everything went, everything yeah. got worse. Right. My thesis was busted at that point. So it changed to be this feeling of, okay, what's the best case scenario that we can now expect? And I even I won't even talk about soft landings anymore. I don't think any of us can agree that 25 percent down in the S&P is a soft landing. Okay, and if we're investors and that's what we're talking about, that's hard no matter which way you slice and dice it. So at this point, what we're looking at is what's the best case scenario? The best case scenario is that we flush the rest of it out quickly and we exhaust the sellers. And then the question is, at what point do we exhaust the sellers and what are the indicators that you want to look at that say, OK, we're now at extremes? That sentiment survey is one of them. Yeah. We're at extremes in the sense that we've been bearish for a really long period of time this year. But where we're not still at extremes is the levels in the S&P and the multiples in the S&P and earnings and credit spreads. So there's still some more pain that I think we're going to feel before we can actually level out and find more durable upside. But I don't think that it needs to get down as low as the most bearish of bears are saying. So I would say somewhere around that 3,300 level is where I'd be comfortable with, okay, you know what? That's enough of a flush. Now let's start thinking of where we can pick up some good bargains. Well, I mean, listen, good luck with that if you're going to try to time it to 3,300 as the bottom. And I know that's not what you're trying to do. And I guess my point is one, one really positive step, I think, if you're trying to find out how we bottom in the S&P 500, 
Yesterday, Bank of America went for 2023 S&P earnings estimates to $200. And if you look at where the S&P usually troughs on a multiple basis, it's usually at 14 or 15 times. So if you do 14 times the $200, it gets you down to 2,800. Now, Jamie Dimon said another 20% lower. Well, another 20% lower, it gets you down to about 2,900. And so I guess the point is, if we go to 3,300 just on some sort of fears of increased kind of global macro issues. We got them all going all over the place. China is still in COVID lockdowns. We got a shooting war in Europe. We got the BOE with two interventions in, you know, a, a matter of two days or so. You know, we know that there's some real issues um, going on over there in their treasury markets or the version of that here. So there's a lot of things going on at a time where it's very clear that the U.S. is in a earnings recession. So if we have enough strategists, enough economists who come around to the other side of the boat, who've been waiting to kind of throw in the towel, if estimates are low enough for 2023, that's how the stock market bottoms. Now, to your point today about turnaround Tuesday, here's a chart, the S&P um, futures here, the E-minis. And if you look at this level we're contending with, Liz, it's right at that low, right, from about a week and a half ago or so before we had that big rip. Um, we're really struggling here. It's right around that June low here. And so to me, it really depends how we close today and if we can follow through to tomorrow and if we can kind of start discounting some bad news, because very soon we're going to start getting a lot of earnings news. We're going to talk about banks in a second. I think a big one here is the U.S. dollar, though, right? So we've had this kind of blow-off move over the last couple of months or so. I drew a couple lines on this chart. Um, when you look at that steep uptrend that it's been in since early August, I mean, that is an astounding move. And we're going to hit Derek on that move a little bit, too, um, when he comes in in just a few minutes here. But a dollar kind of slowing its pace of its rise and possibly coming back to that uptrend and maybe breaking it might be also kind of a bullish sign for U.S. stocks because we know a disproportionate are made of these large uh, multinationals. I would stop short of calling it a bullish sign. I think it's a little bit more of a supportive sign in the sense that, okay, maybe it prevents a big stab downward. Now, investors like different levels to watch. So here are three things that I would watch. First and foremost, and, and this is to the point of the next 100 basis points in the Fed funds rate could be painful. We're at 325 on an upper bound. The 10-year Treasury, let's say the upper bound there is about four-ish. When that Fed funds rate approaches or gets above the 10-year Treasury, that's a decision moment for markets. And I do think that there is some pain between this yeah. point and then. So watch that first and foremost. Secondly, I would say that restrictive policy. So the Fed has said multiple times we want to get to restrictive policy and we have to stay there for a while in order to fight inflation. But the definition of restrictive is different depending on who you ask. The simplest and probably most straightforward definition of restriction is that the Fed funds rate gets above inflation. Now, obviously, we are way far away from that at yeah. this point. We've got you know 8.3% CPI and a 3.25 Fed funds rate. So inflation will have to fall along with the Fed funds rate going up if and when those two things get closer together, that starts to be a more bullish signal for stocks. But in that interim period, yes, more pain to come. And then the last thing I would say is just thinking about when the Fed is looking at the labor market, that's probably something that you want to watch in the macro environment. I don't think it's going to break until later this year, possibly December. You'll start to see little things move up like initial jobless claims. Obviously, we've seen openings come down. But when that labor market breaks and we start to feel kind of a momentum on the downside, yeah. that's a bullish signal for stocks as well. 
Yeah, no, it is. And that's a confusing one. I think it's kind of mm -hmm. confused a lot of investors like me. I mean, none of us want to be like kind of, you know, rooting for higher unemployment, but it does right. seem to be one of the things that has just kind of stuck here. And, and the other one, as far as wage growth as a sticky part of inflation, I mean, we're all happy for it. You know, workers, you know, relative to inflation for decades have not really gotten a raise and it's not getting much better right now, but it's definitely been hurting margins as it relates to, um, you know, a, a lot of em employers over the last little bit. So if, if other input costs could come in, I think that's something that maybe we could kind of let stick a little bit. And, you know, talking about that pain period where, you know, you have um, Fed funds over uh, the 10 year, you know, we're about to get there. The CME FedWatch tool mm -hmm. is suggesting, you know, 4% or so at this next meeting. You know, this is this is kind of a big one because that this is now, you know, close to 80 percent. Right. And that kind of wavered a little bit, especially as the market started rallying last week. Thoughts on the, in the move into the Fed on the 10 year. Yeah. So there are some theories that would say that the top on the 10 year is more like a half of a percent down uh, from where the Fed funds rate terminal rate would get. So right now, the market is pricing in about a four point seven percent terminal Fed funds rate. And that would be in March of 2023. Now that changes, you know, anywhere between five to 10 basis points on a daily basis, but let's say 4.7% terminal rate. So that would say that the top on the 10 year, let's call it 425 just to be clean about it. So you wouldn't expect the 10 year to get too much higher than it is right now, but we've got another three weeks or so between now and the next Fed move where we're going to find out if they do 75. And that three weeks, unfortunately, is going to be peppered with a bunch of earnings data. And I think that this earnings season is going to be very pivotal. There is not a big buffer on the upside to keep us in growth territory year over yeah. year. So there could be a lot of volatility through the month of October up until that Fed meeting. The last thing I would say about this is that a pause is not a pivot. And I think that there is a good chance if they do 75 in November, that they just decide to hang out for December and not necessarily do anything and let some of it bake through the economy. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, but I also think they're gonna kind of float some trial balloons before that. <clears throat> and you might see the 10 year come in a little bit. That's the trade that I've kind of been positioning for in the GOVT, the iShares, um, you know, uh, Treasury ETF here. All right, Liz, let's go through some of these things. We only have a couple minutes left here before <clears throat> Derek joins us here. Um, Amanda put together a nice little slide. Some of the things that you would be buying at different levels right now at the S&P oh 3300. And then at the end of the year, talk to me a little bit about right now, kind of dipping your toe in the water as far as gold, financials, healthcare, and industrials. And we have some charts up here you know, when we look at the gold chart, it's just been, as Guy said yesterday in Market Call, a widow maker. This thing, you know, is just in a very well-defined downtrend here. And, you know, with inflation at 40-year highs, you think gold would have acted a little bit better here. Thoughts on why you'd be buying gold real quickly. And then also, let's just kind of talk about financials after that. Because to me, I think some of the reasons why gold's not going higher is some of the reasons why banks can't get going either. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. So gold, I, I would probably say one foot in the grave, the other on a banana peel for the last <laughs> few months. Yeah. But we can call it a widow maker if you want. I love the uh, crystal ball slide. So if you've been watching Market Call, if you've seen me on CNBC, some of this what I would buy now stuff, not a surprise. I've been saying this for a while. So if we talk about gold, number one, 
I'm still worried about a global currency issue, we'll call yeah. it, right? The the pound stuff that went on didn't end up being super contagious around the globe, but that doesn't mean that that's over. It doesn't mean that they've got their arms around it. I think, in fact, today is probably another example of they don't have their arms around it. So I'm still concerned with global currency markets and just everything that's intertwined in them. So gold is a good option in that scenario. And yeah. it is clearly, by looking at this chart, not overpriced. Yeah, Please, and real quick. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it just technically it looks like a disaster, though. I mean, if it right. can't rally here <clears throat> and it breaks back below that prior support, I mean, we're, we got, you know, probably 1600 on the offing here. Real quickly on banks, we know that a bunch of the money centers are going to report this Friday here, mm -hmm. you know, at a pretty crucial level, technically. And again, you know, to the point about what you were just making about why you want to buy gold. If, if gold starts to work for those reasons, um, bank stocks here in the U.S. or globally are not going to work here. So to me, I think these levels are really important here as we head into the bulk of bank earnings over the next few days. Yeah, and this is going to be a really big week, obviously, because we're going to hear from all the big bank CEOs. And, you know, as much as people are probably going to criticize their comments, you have to give them credit for the fact that they are so much closer to consumer lending and they have a much clearer lens into what's happening in the economy than many other companies do. So pay close attention to these earnings. Now, here's the thing about it doesn't it doesn't always you don't how do I say this? You don't buy things for the same reasons or to protect against the same risks, right? So I would buy gold to protect against international currency risk. I would buy banks because number one, they're the second cheapest sector in the index. They got killed through this cycle and they haven't found their way out of it, partially because we have a yield curve that is just not working in their yeah. favor. If we get to a point where the market bottoms out and the Fed has to either pause or a pivot becomes closer to in view, that yield curve inversion goes away or at least gets much more narrow. And yeah. then the banks can start to come out of that. So I would want people to start building positions in those value type cyclicals because that's what could really bounce off the bottom. And I want you to be ready for that bottoming process and that the bounce that kind of gets us out of it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think banks will probably bottom before the market bottoms too, given mm -hmm. the relative underperformance we've seen. All right, 3,300. Let's talk about semis. We know there's been a whole host of, of really negative news here. They've led to the downside as it relates to the NASDAQ this year. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. this export bans of technology is a big deal. The lines I drew here, I think, are really important because, again, you're never going to be able to pick that bottom. I think on your way back towards this is the SMH, the ETF that tracks the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. If you get back towards that pre-pandemic high, I mean, that might be a really interesting level. Why does the semis stick out to you at that level down there at 3,300? They stick out to me because they are the cyclical indicator of technology stocks. So this is almost a way to play cyclicals in tech. And it's those times when it feels like it's the most wrong thing to do to put risk back on that it probably is the right thing to do. So if we yeah. get down to that 3300 level in the index, and just to be very clear, 3357 is 30% down from those January highs. That's when we have started to price in a recession. So that's when I would start dripping into things like semis and things like the risk on categories that yep. do bounce so much more violently off of a bottom and you want to have exposure there. But I think we got a little bit more down to go before that happens. Fair enough. I think we got a little bit more too. Um, all right. Lastly, and then again, you know, um, end of the year, Russell 2000, small caps, um, you know, showing pretty decent relative performance just this week. Hasn't made a new low with the S&P or the NASDAQ. So we will kind of take another look at that one on Thursday. But Liz, I know you got to get out of here. We really appreciate you stepping in for Guy Adami here today. So thank you very much, LY from SoFi.
Happy to be here. See you Thursday. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Liz, for that. All right. Derek Salmon, Global Head of Commodities, Options and International Markets at CME Group. Welcome to Market Call. How are you, Derek? I'm good, man. Sorry that you're not feeling particularly well. (laughs) I guess you got one of those early fall uh, things that get in the back of your throat. I definitely did. So I appreciate you uh, dealing with my voice here. But, you know, this is kind of we planned this a while ago for you coming on, but I couldn't think of a better sort of week for someone with your pedigree. Um, You traded FX, you traded futures and options uh, in those markets for a very long time before you joined CME Group. I mean, when you think about a lot of the volatility we're seeing on all different sorts of, uh, you know, asset classes here, this time around, it really is being led by FX. Talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the current environment we're in and give us some context to some of the periods where you were a very active trader in. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you, you and Dan, you know, like me, we spent our careers mostly as traders. I spent the yeah. first 16, 17 years of my career. I actually started trading on the floor of Chicago Mercantile Exchange yeah. back in 1990, trading FX options. And then that turned into four years later. I got hired by a French bank and went to Europe and traded FX options structured products for French investment banks for years until I joined CME in 2006. And my pedigree, my, my DNA, how I think about markets is formed from my time standing on the trading floor and the following 12 years being upstairs as an OTC trader. So like mm-hmm. you guys, I see the world through a trading lens. And yeah. I gotta tell you, I, I saw some crazy stuff in the early 90s and late 90s, particularly going through monetary union. I'm not sure if a lot of listeners remember what a Deutschmark is or what a French franc is or what a what a, a Turkish lira was. But you know, those were all currencies we traded until monetary union. And there, there were some crazy things happening mm-hmm. to the currency markets at that time. Uh, but these are, you know, we haven't seen lows like in this in the pound. You guys have been talking about this show from the last couple of weeks and even the dollar strength across the board. Yeah. That's both impacting markets, but also being impacted by other asset classes as well. I mean, when I look at it, we'll talk about our, our CME volatility indices here shortly. But yeah. when you look at just the volatility levels, we haven't seen volatility levels in kind of the G5, G6 currency pairs like this really since the onset of COVID, which made everything spike from a volatility point of view, when it n- literally nobody had an idea what was going on. And people were looking to the options markets to understand, you know, what, what's the market telling me? What's the market expectation? What's the skew telling me? Yep. And so if your listeners are watching the options markets, it is a great place to really understand the heartbeat of what the markets are doing. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I've spent some time on the CME floor. This was in the late 90s. I spent a couple of days with a guy that, that I worked with who traded a lot of S&P um, futures. And it was really interesting to me because at the time we really weren't focused on the options market. You know, he was trading futures directionally. He was doing it to, um, for the leverage. He was also using it for the ease of use and the liquidity and the ability to set stops. And you just said something really interesting, though, that if you were looking at options, on those markets, it would give you a sense of maybe sentiment when you're talking about things like skew, and we're not going to get into that right now. Talk to us a little bit about how options on some of these futures markets, why they are so important right now. And you just heard Liz and I talking about the AIII, you know, bull bear sort of stuff. This is not too different than that. No, it's not. I mean, you, your listeners are looking for any information to glean some sense of what, what the, where, where, the, where the risk is in the market. And options are a terrific tool for gaining market sentiment. So, yes, there's an absolute level of volatility when volatility is higher, expresses a greater uh, concern around current market conditions. But you start to get under the covers of you look at the, the, the strikes across the calls and the puts and you start to be able to glean information like Things like skew, I know we're going to talk about it, but I'll, I'll touch on it for just a minute. 
when you have tools to very easily assess, like looking at a number and say, wow, that's a high number and be able to track that. And the market is telling you, hey, that skew in energy or the skew in gold or the skew in fixed income is telling you that there is a much greater concern for the upside than there is for the downside. That tells you the market's much more worried about a market going in a certain direction than another direction. That's the that's the benefit yeah. and the flexibility of, of a sophisticated product like options. Uh, and the you know customers and your listeners need to be looking at benchmark markets that are electronic that trade 24 hours a day. They always know what the market's selling, and you can enter and exit transactions uh, you know seamlessly. And that, in a nutshell, is is what customers can see when they look at the cross-asset class options business to see in the group, whether it's agricultural products, mm-hmm. metals products, energy products, fixed income equities, or FX. Um, every major benchmark is on-screen liquid, very different from the 90s when you and I are on the floor. Mm-hmm. But you know, customers yeah. and your listeners can see this unfolding in real time and get information that you just can't get by just looking at price up, price down. So Derek, it's not just the information, the access to it that um, investors have right now, but they're also using these products. And today, I think you guys had a press release out. It just crossed the wires here that Q3, your average daily volume in this year, 2022, was up 21% from that of Q3 um, in 2021. What's going on year over year? Because if you just think about what's happened, okay, and this might be a, a good educational thing for some of our viewers here, in 2023, or excuse me, last year at this time, the market was on autopilot. It was just going higher for the most part, the major indices. And now here we are. I think a lot of investors feel like we're on autopilot the other way. Is there some sort of correlation to volumes with, um, you know, a downward market? And what does that speak to about the ability to use futures for hedging? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I would say it's that this is the beauty of being, uh, you know, one of the working for the world's largest derivative exchange with cross-asset class markets, you get access to, our markets are correlated, right? The energy market is both driving and being driven by the equities market. The equities market is driving and being driven by uh, fixed income. Fixed income is being driven and driving foreign exchange, which is just interest rate differentials. So what we see our customers doing is looking across the range of all of the asset classes and taking buy-sell trade signals from what that market's telling them. You know, what, why, why is oil up or down on this certain day? Is it macro driven? Is it driven by supply and demand? Is it OPEC and the Biden conversations, U.S. energy policy? So we're actually seeing that our volumes roughly t- correlate well with, with higher volatility, higher volatility, more hedging, more speculating. Um, what we do see is our volumes are not always directly correlated to equity volatility. Yeah. They're correlated to six asset class volatilities across the range from financial products all the way through to commodities products. And if we've learned nothing about the last you know, two and a half, three years, but physical supply chains drive markets, right? The price of oil is driving markets. The price, the price and availability of copper and gold and grains, particularly when you know huge swaths of grain markets are removed from the Russia uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine, like that directly impacts markets, that directly impacts the, the value of the dollar, and that directly impacts monetary and fiscal policy decisions taken by the Fed. So yep. I think customers are, are looking for the broadest set of tools and market indicators they can. And we're seeing a broader set of customers not only look at futures and options, which are traded 24-7, five and a half days a week, but they're looking also across asset classes to start to understand the broader connections. You get a level underneath that, you talk about options, a level underneath that mm-hmm. is volatility, a level underneath that is things like skew. So th- th- no matter who you are, no matter who your listeners are, are, are and what markets your listeners are interested in, 
futures and futures options are will give you the most complete story across asset classes. And we're seeing retail volumes be a significant contributor and growth driver for us across all of our asset classes. All right, let's talk about this CVOL index that you guys have there at the CME. Again, this is a cross asset class, um, you know, uh, index here. And so, what are, what are the what are the inputs to this uh, CVOL? And, and and again, you just laid out why investors should be looking across that. What does this do that let's say some other volatility index don't do? Let's just say if I'm really focused on equity markets, you know, this is I have to assume very useful because the inputs are much broader and to the point you just made is that all of these things are making other things move, right? When you have a headline about something OPEC plus with 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 oil, there's effects on the dollar, there's effects on FX, and then obviously that's going to work its way into the equity markets too. Yeah. I mean, very, very simply stated, you know, a volatility an indicator is simply a reflection of market sentiment, whether there's, you know, a, a greater expectation of movement or a lesser expectation of movement. And Markets for years and years and years, ever since options were developed, have always used kind of overall levels of volatility as a gauge of sort of a fear index or otherwise. What's unique about what we developed in what we call CVOL or CME volatility uh, suite of indices is we're the only place where customers can come and get the same mathematical interpretation of volatility in energy, foreign exchange, fixed income, Mm -hmm. metals agricultural products. Right now, the market really has only been able to look at and understand volatility indices in terms of the equities market. But at the point, Dan, you just made, all markets are connected and correlated, either you know cause and causality. They're being driven by or driving uh, other markets. And so customers are looking for a better understanding of what's going on in the energy market. They come to see me futures and options and look at our volatility indices to get under the covers of what that market's actually telling you. So it's becoming an indispensable tool for customers to be able to interpret what the market's telling them and help them manage their risk better or, or make better decisions on how to enter or when to enter a particular transaction. All right. Well, Derek, you started this conversation by saying that we have similar DNA. And I got to tell you, you you basically talked about some very complex sort of products and markets in a very uh, easy to understand manner. So I really appreciate that as somebody who, um, you know, likes things to be explained to them here. And I hope our, our viewers really appreciated that. So we really appreciate you coming on here. We hope that you'll come back. And I think that we'll have a lot to talk about as we get closer to that kind of November 2nd meeting and the Fed. And we see just really what U.S. Uh, US corporate earnings are going to look like and just you know, is the rest of the world going to reopen? You know, China, I mean, think about the ripple effects that that their lockdowns are having on all the products that you just mentioned. And what does it mean if they were to kind of reopen here? So again, Derek, really appreciate you coming on here. I appreciate um, CME and the support that they have for Market Call. So thanks a lot. We hope you come back. Thanks. Hope you feel better as well. Thanks, bud. I appreciate it. All right. That's going to do it today for Market Call. We really appreciate Liz Young filling in uh, for Guy Adami. He'll be back with me tomorrow. And of course, Derek Salmon for joining us here. One more shout out to our sponsor, CME Group. And of course, FactSet for providing all those tricked out charts and the data that we just uh, kind of went through here. And of course, to Open Exchange for powering us. So if you're enjoying our show, be sure to like the video. I think it's on YouTube Live. It's on Twitter Live. Um, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. So we'll be back tomorrow. As I said, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting is going to be with us. And Tom Sosnoff from Tasty Trade. So thanks again for joining us today. And we'll see you tomorrow.